Habakkuk 2, starting at verse 15. Woe to him that giveth his neighbor drink, and puttest thy bottle to him, and makest him drunken also, that thou mayest look on their nakedness. Thou art filled with shame for glory. Drink thou also, and let thy foreskin be uncovered. The cup of the Lord's right hand shall be turned unto thee, and shameful spewing shall be on thy glory. For the violence of Lebanon shall cover thee, and the spoil of beasts which made them afraid because of men's blood, and for the violence of the land, of the city, and of all that dwell therein. So far, let us pray. Holy God, we come before you as we read a sobering word that speaks to a broken world. I pray, Father, for wisdom to bring the word faithfully. I pray that it would penetrate into hearts and lives and bear much fruit. Lord, truly, you call us to honor you, to glorify you. And so, Lord, we pray that you would give us ready hearts and minds to hear, to receive, to do so equipped and empowered by the Holy Spirit. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so uh, again, just reminding ourselves very briefly where we've been in the book of Habakkuk. Judah is wicked. God brings in Babylon or Chaldea to bring judgment on the people of Judah. And Habakkuk is shocked because if Judah's bad, why would God bring in a worse nation than herself to judge the people? And that leads us to chapter 2, where God's answer to the shock comes in the form of a vision. We saw that the vision speaks of an answer that moves into the time of Christ, into the time of his kingdom and beyond. And so we will talk about a short-term fulfillment when it talks about Babylon getting brought down under the Medo-Persian Empire, but also at the end when Babylon, which represents the cities of man, man in his arrogance, gets brought down through the Lord Jesus Christ. We've looked at um, three of five woes that God speaks to the people. The first woe was basically summarized as the plunderer will be plundered. The second woe stresses that evil and its fruit do not build a secure foundation for the future. And so if we're hoping to build something up that lasts, don't do it Babylon's way. And we saw last time that the third woe talks about the glory that building cities and empires and cultures over the backs of others is empty, it's vain, as the Bible says, and it's destructive. And that we saw last time that the God of all glory will establish the right and the most honorable glory to his name in the knowledge of him. So that's just a summary of where we've been. So three points this morning. The first one is the cup shared. The next one is the cup prepared. And the last one is the cup not spared. So the cup shared, prepared, and not spared. So first of all, the cup shared. The scripture says, Woe unto him that giveth his neighbor drink. Notice what Babylon here does to her neighboring countries and kings that she has conquered. She gives them a drink. Now, to give your neighbor a drink can be actually a really nice thing to do if he's thirsty or if he's distraught and you want to refresh his soul. By all means, cheer him up. 
help a, a thirsty soul come back to life, as it were. But for Babylon, it's not that at all. In fact, God sees that there's other motives involved in Babylon's offering a drink, metaphorically, and he sees them for what they are. And therefore, this drink gives a woe upon Babylon. Now, notice it says, Thou puttest thy bottle to him. He presses a bottle, as it were, to the mouths of his neighbor. The imagery here is of a powerful king giving his subjects wine. Now, depending on the Hebrew vowel points in this text, the word for bottle is also translated as venom or poison. And that comes from the Hebrew root for heat or wrath. So it could also be you are forcing this. It's a double meaning. You're forcing the bottle of venom into his mouth. I think that harkens back to Deuteronomy 32, where it says their wine is the poison of dragons and the cruel venom of asps. And I think it's reaching back to that text. It goes on, it says, and makest him drunken also. Uh, the sin of Babylon is characterized by drunkenness, bullying, and perversion. The use of wine for perversion and to satisfy your own lusts is nothing new. Remember what David tried to get Uriah to do after he had committed adultery with his wife. It says in the Bible that when David had called this faithful soldier home, he did eat and drink before him and he made him drink drunk. And at even he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his Lord, but went not down to his house. David wanted to use the alcohol, the wine, to, uh, to cover his own sin. Now look at the text carefully when it says, and makest him drunk. There's an element of force here in what Babylon is doing. Most likely, Nebuchadnezzar's drinking buddies here were actually captive kings, and he thought it was sport. He thought it was a game to make them drunk, to make them a mockery. And this idea of making others participate in your stuff so you can make fun of them is nothing new. Perhaps we've seen this or experienced this ourselves, maybe growing up uh, on the playground as a kid. The playground bullies or the, the crowd would try to pressure kids to do something, and the kid does it, and everybody laughs at them. Perhaps you've seen it where business associates will use social pressures or their position to coerce somebody a little lower on the rung to do something, and they're the ones who take the fall. Well, we must be careful also that this kind of coercion doesn't come into the churches. Um, it happens because there's a lot of pressure on pastors to preach softer sermons to avoid anything that could be offensive. Theological poison infiltrates into denominations. And uh, maybe you've heard the saying, unity at all costs. And that kind of a slogan becomes the party whip, as it were, for denominations to hold it all together and slowly pastors capitulate as we see, as we, we prayed about, values of culture eroding and infecting the church. 
Now Babylon cannot rest until she's made others join in her degradation. She delights, as it were, with a twisted glee to see others indulging in her sins. And there's nothing new here. In fact, the Apostle Paul picks up this same theme in his whole litany of sins in Romans 1. You know how it ends? It says, Who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. And so Babylon loves to see others do what she does, all the while knowing God is watching and God is not pleased. Babylon, then, we see is the archetype of the sinfulness of sin. It's because sinners want company. They don't want to be alone. They want to drag others with them. And by dragging others with them, they actually exclude others from the kingdom of God. The Bible says that thieves, nor covetousness, covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. Sin is that serious. And so the book of Revelation, picking up this theme of Babylon, actually goes this far, and it says, For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. You see the word adultery again, and fornication, sexual sin. And the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her. And the merchants of the earth are waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies. Oh, it looks so nice to join the parties. It's so attractive. It's, it's enticing. The Bible says, And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues. Do you hear that? Come out. We are called to be a separate people, to not participate, to not join in, to not take the devil's sweet drink to our mouths to pray for one another, for this body, and for the church worldwide. Pray for open eyes to see that behind this nice drink, as it were, is a vileness and a poison. Babylon's taps have amused many and broken many, many marriages, many families, many businesses, many countries that start to indulge in this Babylon's heart is to scandalize people with sin. So who are our friends? Who feeds your mind during the week? Do you dial in on the radio or on a podcast or read the newspaper or hang around with people who are going to feed Babylon's wine to your mouth? Perhaps you think you're immune from influence. Well, Babylon's influence worked powerfully in the Roman Catholic Church throughout history. Did Rome not mix flattery with deceit? Was it not the promise of favor that she often gave, but if you didn't listen, just like Babylon, she accompanied it with prisons, galleys, and for those who were stubborn, with the rack as the Inquisition broke forth upon them. 
Now, uh, surely you might think I'm stronger than to put the goblet of compromise to my lips. We won't do that. But won't we? Do you remember what happened during COVID? Was the church not completely caught off guard when the edict came down? Close your doors. The one anothering isn't as important as what's going down in culture. Have we forgotten what happened not too long ago? Now Babylon's king coaxed other kings into this mad lust for power and most likely would feed him the drink and say, hey, can you go on these military campaigns for me and shed blood for me and being drunk with the hollow promises of lands and rewards, these kings would go and run and they were empty rewards and this is why politics can be so dangerous There's backdoor deals. There's the whining and the dining to get your way. And well-meaning people go into positions of leadership. Perhaps you sit on boards. Perhaps you've sat on councils. But deals can be very enticing. Pats on the shoulders, favors, and compromise sets in. Why are we so easily lured by advertisement? It's a great, powerful tool that media uses. Why is it that we have a term called smooth talkers? Is it not because we really believe that what they promise will satisfy us? That's why we start to drink the wine. Is it not not because they're touching a nerve of longing that everybody has? Is it not because we're expecting from man what only God can give? That's what happens. They don't speak of God. They don't speak of the Lord. They speak of something else that can satisfy us. And so we need the preciousness of Christ ever before us as the only source of satisfaction, even in church, We can get busy sharpening our theological pencils. We can get busy making sure we're having everything in order and we're practicing hospitality. But if the locus and the focus and the center of that is not knowing Christ more, we are nothing more than a social club. Christ is the center of the church. He's the head of the body. Ephesians says so that the whole body may grow up To him, not a cross, not to the hand, not to the feet, but to the head. And so let us ask ourselves this morning, what do I really have an appetite for? What do I hunger after? And so Peter calls us, instead of drinking Babylon's wine, to desire the sincere milk of the word that we may grow thereby. You'll never go wrong spending too much time in God's book. How are we doing on that? Now, the mixture of allurement and fear are powerful. Perhaps as a city is invading 
is surrounded by invading armies, you feel insecure at this moment in your life. Perhaps things are invading, as it were, threatening you. Perhaps you're sitting here this morning and finances are tight. Perhaps you've got weakening health. Maybe there's relationships in your life, close family members, and they're brittle, and you're at the breaking point, and it's tempting at that point to offer a peace treaty to the threat, to sip a little bit more of what the fear is offering you, and before long, if you're run by fear, if you're run by anxiety, if you're run, run by these pressures, you'll get drunk with anxiety. You start making foolish decisions. Oh, soon what happens when you do that? You start to isolate, you capitulate, and you start to blame others. And, and, and you say, but I thought I'd be more secure this way. And then finally, just like a drunkard who is sobering up, guilt sets in for what you've done. Perhaps... This is hitting very close to home. Perhaps that's you this morning. Oh, won't you flee with all your guilt, with all your losses, with all your anxiety and fears and your brittle relationships and the unknowns of the future. Flee to the refuge of God himself. He is our hope. He is our joy. He is the anchor. He always gives us what's healthy and good for our souls. Do not despair. Run to him. Do not be shackled by failure as we always tend to do. I've messed up ten times too many. Surely God does not want me. And so we go run back to Babylon's wine. No, let us run to the feast that Jesus Christ offers in himself. That is hope. That is life. That is where we need to be. To be shaped by the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. But Babylon offers something else. We see the heart of Babylon in the next phrase. That thou mayest look on their nakedness. Babylon's orgy has a sick goal. To look on the nakedness of others. This is backstabbing in its greatest form. And notice the word here in the Bible is so powerful. The word is, in the beginning, woe to him that giveth to his neighbor drink. The, the Hebrew word there is often translated as friend. This neighbor is a close friend, and, and so he sucks him in. And a friend gets treated as an enemy when the shame moves to the friend. As Babylon deflects her own shame to the next person. And they get backstabbed. And notice in the text it says that thou mayest look on their nakedness. The word for look is kind of interesting because of all the minor prophets and almost all the prophets. Habakkuk uses it by far the most, definitely of the minors. This word is prominent in this book. And this is no mistake. In this verse, we get the pinnacle of the opposite of what happened before. Just follow the thread here. Habakkuk 1.3. Remember Habakkuk's fear. Why dost thou show me iniquity and cause me to behold, exact same word, grievance. There it's Habakkuk, covenant people of God. It's even used of the Lord himself. Look at Habakkuk 
Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil and canst not look, there's our word, on iniquity. And here it gets used again. Wherefore lookest thou upon them that deal treacherously and holdest thy tongue when the wicked devoureth the man that is more righteous than he. You see what's happening is the Lord is picking up these terms that first got applied to Habakkuk doesn't want to see it. And God by no means can see it. And Habakkuk says Babylon loves to see it. Babylon is appetized by what he sees. The, the link in scripture between shame, nakedness, and sin are unmistakable. We can think back to the garden with Adam and Eve, but we can also look to other scriptures. God says to Nineveh, he says, Behold, I am against thee, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will discover Thy skirts upon thy face. Imagine the wind blowing their skirts up. And I will show the nations thy nakedness and the kingdoms thy shame. Nahum 3.5. But another one. To Babylon, God says in Isaiah 47.3. Thy nakedness shall be uncovered. Yea, thy shame. There's the same word. Shall be seen. I will take vengeance. I will not meet thee as a man. And so this exposure, as it were, is what Babylon is doing to his neighbors. He's, he's exposing them, making fun of them, ridiculing them, bringing them down. As one commentator says, this word is so graphic that we can tame it down by just simply saying to look upon their private parts. Captives were often led away in the shame of nakedness. And combining the nakedness with drunkenness, you get the rage of a captor abusing with sexual violence his captive. And often in those cultures, they would feminize even kings and stuff like that and turn them into victims. We see something similar in scripture with the mixture of alcohol, wine, and drunkenness, and sexual sin. We see it in Lot's daughters who go to bed with their own father after making him drunk. But specifically remember Noah. And this one's interesting. Because the Bible says in Genesis 9.19, it says, And Noah began to be an husbandman, this is after the flood, and he planted a vineyard. Now that seems innocent. And then it says, and he drank of the wine and was drunken and he was uncovered in his, within his tent. And then the Bible says, and Ham, the father of Canaan, incidentally, Canaan, the arch enemy of Israel, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brethren without. That phrase saw the nakedness of his father that phrase is identically used in Leviticus in the holiness code with sexual sin that God strongly forbids I think commentators see something deeply sinister in Ham Ham lived before the flood when the earth was filled with violence sexual orgies, and filth. And right after the flood, when his father is uncovered, 
The Bible just says he saw the nakedness, but linking that with Leviticus, something more sinister may have taken place. And undoubtedly, Babylon's bullying of the other nations and these orgies that she had with kings to humiliate them very likely involved homosexual abominations. And whereas Ham did not feed the wine to his father, Babylon forced the wine to their lips. I think we need to step back here for a second and see how God is absolutely and totally disgusted with exploiting neighbors. And it is to both mock man and God. Because I think we need to start seeing as we wrap our heads around Babylon that we start to really get impressed with the reality that sin always debases. It always sinks lower and lower. And like mud, it sucks you down. And so when we see in this culture the abominations of drag queen story hours and gay pride parades and gender reassignment mutilations and talks of right now, I was listening the other day, to they're already talking about how to manage polygamous relationships within your little family where they're enlarging them again. You see, the filth of Babylon's abomination is very real in Canada. Are we surprised that the heart of Babylon is reflected in a nation whose moral compass is completely centered around me, myself, and I? How do you respond? How do you respond? I'm not talking about to your friend, your neighbor, or your parents, or to your husband or wife. How do you respond in your heart? to the things God calls shameful. Young people, there is an epidemic of pornography in this nation. Our phones can be the most enticing place to sexual perversion. And as Heath Lambert said so well, he said, you cannot look at Jesus and look at porn at the same time. Parents, do you choose friends for your children? Choose friends for your children intentionally? Guard them that will not pervert their minds? Are we intentional about modesty in a culture that I bet you if you ask them, what does modesty even mean? Nobody knows anymore. And rather than exploiting our neighbors, let us love them with our prayers and with gospel truth. But perhaps... Perhaps you have been abused by Babylon's, a Babylonian tyrant yourself. Never told anybody or very few people. And perhaps the pain still lingers deep inside. There is healing. It's not to be found in one another. It's to be found in Jesus Christ. In Christ there is a high priest who brings forgiveness. There's a high priest who sympathizes us, with us, who prays for us, 
who prays for the hurting, the broken, the downcast, those who are beaten up, those who are made drunk and shamed. In Christ, we find an identity that is holy and pure and beautiful. We find life. So turn to Christ. Know Christ. Find your hope in him. This leads me to the second point. The cup prepared. Verse 16, thou art filled with shame for glory. You see what he does? He redefines shame for glory. He says, the shameful is what I'll take glory in. Being filled with shame, Babylon engorges in this kind of stuff and boasts it. To feed the monster, though, is vainglory. And this is often how shame works. Shame will look to crush others to make itself look better. Because when your conscience is beaten down, what do we normally do? We dig in. We say, oh, it's your fault that I did this. I do this. I do something wrong, and instead of owning up to it quickly, well, if you hadn't, I want to shame them a little bit more so I don't look so bad. It's easy to do, isn't it? I know I do that. I think we have to start realizing I can't boast of filthiness. There's no glory, is there, in doing that which God says is gross? Maybe a line we need to remember is shame is like an acid that eats away at the honorable. The more we highlight shame, the more we degrade and corrode honor. Now, on the altar of pride is powerful because it is willing to shed innocent blood. Nothing is too far for this altar. Recently, Iowa conservative lawmakers rejected a bill that would protect the life of the unborn. Why? They almost passed it. And then they backpedaled because they realized that if they would pass it, it would mean mothers who had killed the babies in their womb could be chargeable. So they backpedaled. Was that a praiseworthy decision? Do lawmakers glory in that kind of a decision? I don't think so. It says in the text, drink thou also. As Babylon had forced the goblet to the mouths of her captors, God now says, you drink. Our leaders are not immune from the very drinks they foist upon others. Do you really think, do we really think that if we exploit somebody else, we will walk away unscathed and just wash our hands and nobody sees this stuff? Absolutely not. And then God in the most graphic terms says this, let thy foreskin be uncovered. This is among the most graphic terms in the Bible and it reveals a double disgrace. The shame of nakedness is one thing as the wind lifts up, as it were, their skirts or they go bare as they're drunk. But the next part is it actually speaks about what's exposed. And the disgrace becomes utter disgrace as it reveals that Babylon is uncircumcised. That's what's happening here. You know what that means? It means she will be exposed as pagan, as heathen, or to use a term from the Leviticus Code as profane. 
In this, what we would call reciprocal judgment, God exposes the real scandal here, the real problem here, because Babylon, in all of her conquests, has not submitted to the God of Israel, to the God of angel armies. Do you realize that is probably the most shameful thing of all? To be outside of God's covenant community is utter disgrace. It is the most debasing, the most dishonorable, the most degrading reality to be outside of the covenant community of faith. And you can be sitting here this morning and on the outside. Why? Because as Babylon was physically uncircumcised, we must be spiritually circumcised. And if our hearts are uncircumcised, we are outside of that blessed covenant. And the Bible in the New Covenant says this. It says about nakedness, it says, neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. You see, when God with his blazing, pure holiness looks inside of our hearts, the nakedness of our hearts, what's he going to see? What will be exposed in you and in me? Will you be found a child of Babylon or a child of God? What good is it if you're a saint before men, but you are a pagan before God? Is that going to do us any good? Absolutely not. Your God alone, then, we find in Scripture is like, well, if, if I'm exposed here, I can't do anything about it. I can't change hearts. We can't change the hearts of our kids. We can't change the hearts of our neighbors. We are completely dependent on God Almighty. And it is a work of the Spirit of God that he says in, in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, And the Lord God, thy God, will circumcise thy heart and the heart of thy seed to love the Lord thy God. You see, the problem of an uncircumcised heart is it, it doesn't love God. But when our hearts are circumcised, we have new affections, new desires, new hopes. And so we are completely dependent on God. And so let us pray to God that he circumcises hearts, that as hearts are laid bare before him, he changes them, and he shows us mercy and grace. But not so for Babylon. The cup of the Lord's right hand, it says, shall be turned unto thee. We read this morning in Psalm 75, 8, that the, in the hand of the Lord there is a cup, and the wine is red, and it's full of mixture. You see, Babylon had been the instrument one time for God to bring judgment to the nations. In fact, this is really powerful. Jeremiah 51.7 actually says this, Babylon hath been a golden cup in the Lord's hand that made all the earth drunken. The nations have drunken of her wine. Therefore, the nations are mad. You see, Babylon had the golden cup for a while, to punish the nations. 
you're home later on, I encourage you to read Jeremiah 25. And look at how God literally starts listing the nations, including Judah, and uses the cup, as it were. It gets passed around, nation after nation after nation after nation. But it ends with this. It says in verse 28, And if they refuse to take the cup at thine hand to drink, then thou shalt say unto them, the prophet, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of angel armies, Ye shall certainly drink. There wasn't a nation, there isn't a person, there's none of us sitting here that when God says we will do, that we can resist. Who hath resisted his will? Jehovah is the one who holds the true cup of shame. It is not the prerogative of man to pass the cup along. And that is why the word here is so interesting when it says the cup of the Lord's right hand shall be turned unto you. It's the idea of it'll come around. Your turn is coming. That's what it says to Babylon. Now it's your turn. Now I'm going to talk about you. And so it says, and shameful spewing shall be on thy glory. That word shameful spewing is only used here in the entire corpus of scripture. The word is the idea of putrid vomit being spit unto all your beautiful, luxurious palace wardrobe and the benches and the couches and over others. Everything that you once honored yourself in and boasted yourself in is covered with the stench and the filth of your own shame as you lay there naked and exposed and completely beside yourself. And so this intensifies the picture of disgrace, all the glory, all the boasting, everything that man has to feed his ego of self will stink with the stench of vomit. It's a pretty gross picture. We sang earlier about the cross. And it talked about understanding sin the filth of it. This whole image that we see in Babylon is there to remind us that sin is that wretched. Its shame is that disgusting. And whether I tell a lie to my brother or I tell a lie to the government, sin is disgusting before God Almighty. Oh, how easily it is to excuse our sins. And I think we all do this. We all think of sin as, well, this one's not that bad. I mean, look at them. And we always use the trump card, Hitler. I'm no Hitler. Well, I'll tell you. Hitler just started as a normal child, too. But when sin festers, and when it feeds on others, that's where it'll take us. And so, yes, sin is that gross. And yes, we need to pray, Oh God, help me to hate my sin more. Let's not talk about each other. Let's just look at ourselves. This brings me to the last point, the cup not spared. For the violence of Lebanon shall cover thee. Now, 
where did Lebanon come from? Why, why Lebanon? What's going on here? Lebanon was a mountainous region on the borders of Israel. So it was kind of in the northern part of Israel. And the cedars of Lebanon in Scripture were the most majestic of all of God's plantings. Scripture says in Psalm 104, 16, it says, The trees of the Lord are full of sap, the cedars of Lebanon which he hath planted. And so to conquer Lebanon, that prized mountainous region, is to win all of its prized cedars. Lebanon is known for its beauty. Moses had called it the good land, Deuteronomy 3.25. I pray thee, let me go over and see the good land that is beyond Jordan. And then he says, that goodly mountain and Lebanon. But Babylon comes in, takes the whole forest, conquers the mountains, and sets her hewers down to chop down the cedars. She rapes the land, and the cedars are used to build her palaces. Now, for power or money, man will do a lot. And the dominion mandate to be fruitful, to multiply, to subdue the earth, easily gets turned into a destruction mandate when we run this thing by our pride and our ego. And we do live in Canada in a throwaway consumeristic culture. The dumps are full of stuff that people once set their eyes on and now threw away because I'm done with it. I need something else to satisfy me. And we're all victims of this. We're victims. Guilty might be a better word. Do we steward what we have? Or do we pillage what does not belong to us? There's a deeper angle to this whole Lebanon thing. Lebanon, her mountains and her trees are representative of the Holy Land of Israel and its glory. Why? Because the Bible is very clear that the cedars of Lebanon were used to build the temple. Now, Babylon had destroyed the temple of God. Now she wants to build her own temple. She, she knows that Zion, the mountain on which the temple stood, is interesting, but she wants that place, Lebanon, to build on that mountain to offer to her own gods. You see, Babylon's heart is to have what belongs to God, to give glory to herself. And so let us remember that man was made to rule over creation as vice regents, as deputies. We represent God, but we do not replace Notice the text says, kind of strikingly, in this whole theme, for the violence of Lebanon shall cover thee. Isn't that interesting? Why cover thee? Because there's nakedness involved. Babylon, again, is laying exposed and naked, and it says, those trees that hold up your palaces will come crashing down. They will be for your covering. In other words, your shame will turn into your destruction. It will turn into the flames. And so we need to ask ourselves this morning, on Judgment Day, on Judgment Day, what do you want to be covered with? Your wardrobe? Your business? Your kids? Your popularity? Your good deeds? The praises of men? 
or the blood of Christ. And so it goes on in the text, the spoil of beasts which made them afraid. Now this could refer to the heavy use of animals for the transportation of wood, or it could talk about the death of animals due to the logging and taking away their homeland and the hunting for sport. We don't get a lot in this one, but we will say this. The fact that God mentions the animal is, animals is interesting because remember how many times I've said Habakkuk reaches back to the wisdom literature of the Bible. And the wisdom literature includes Proverbs. And in Proverbs 12:10 it says, A righteous man regardeth the life of his beasts, but the tender mercies of the wicked are cruel. We've got to take care of our animals well. And we can all be guilty of lifting our foot to get the cat out of the way a little, with a little more force than we maybe should have. It's striking when you think of the animals that, remember Jonah and Nineveh, that great wicked city? And it ends with God saying, should I not spare Nineveh, that great city wherein are more than six score thousand, so 600,000 persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left, in other words, infants, it's a massive city. And then the last thing he says, and much cattle. It's amazing to think of. Do we take care of our cattle, of our animals, of the beasts of the field? The text goes on and says, because of men's blood and for the violence of the land of the city and of all that dwell therein. He moves from trees to animals to land to city to the inhabitants. You see, God's woe is over all of the abuses, over all of creation. And so we see that all of creation groans because of Babylon. And we see in scripture that all of creation groans because of Adam's sin. And so the curse brought about by man must be restored by man but not a man from Babylon's cities. It must be a man from Zion, from the heavenly Zion, the Lord Jesus Christ. He alone can set creation in order. Have you considered the triumphs of Christ? I think this is interesting. The triumphs of Christ extend beyond me, beyond the church, into all of creation. I think that's an amazing thought. It's something to dwell on a lot more than I think we do. All of creation will be restored. Now to wrap this whole thing up, this whole woe, we must realize that the cup of God's wrath on our sin must be drunk by someone. You will either drink it in an eternal hell, forever being punished by the wrath of Almighty God as the cup turns in your direction and you lay naked and exposed before him. Or we remember that one time in history where 2,000 years ago, God turned the cup of his wrath to his own son. And think of the resolved love of Jesus Christ as he passed at the Last Supper the cup to his disciples. 
the Passover cup. He says this is the cup of the new covenant. And he was about to seal it in his own blood. The high king of heaven was sitting there among this ragtag group of disciples. And he embraced the scandal that belongs to beggars and drunks and murderers. But he did it voluntarily, not by force, as Babylon forced and shoved the cup to the lips. Unlike Babylon's coercive sword, Christ's motive was 100% loving obedience to his father. And where Babylon shows no mercy, and us sinners are a dog-eat-dog kind of people, if we really work by our sinful hearts, Christ's heart for his elect was pure and holy and righteous. So marvel at the cup that Jesus drank for sinners and his sympathy for us miserable people. Consider the agony of soul that as Jesus anticipated the cup, as him who inspired this entire prophecy, as him who wrote the woes to Babylon, knew that he would drink the cup himself. Consider that he sweat blood and shed tears and said these profound words. Oh, my father, if this cup may not pass away from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. And he would go all the way, wouldn't he? And he would be stripped of all his clothes, wouldn't he? He would be spit upon, they would press the crown in his head, they would mock him, ridicule him, they would offer him myrrh, which would numb the pain. He wouldn't take it. He fully experienced all of the suffering. Naked he hung. And then the blackness covered the noonday sun as the sun of righteousness was blackened with our shame. This cup was not partially consumed on that day. To the last drop he drank the dregs of the wrath and the fury of Almighty God. And as we consider Babylon's guilt exposing our guilt, consider how the spotless lamb bore the fury of divine justice. Oh, can we lose sight of such a cup of vengeance on my sin and yours? And when they pressed the sour vinegar to his lips, that's the only physical wine, as it were, he would take. But it was already vinegar. It was already completely gone sour to speak of the foulness of our sin. And so we are all invited this morning into the marvel of the cup that was emptied when Christ cried out, it is finished. Amen. Let us pray. Oh, what great love, what great mercy. 
Father, that you would send your son to redeem captives of Babylon's greed into the greatness of your kingdom. O oh Lord, what a mercy, what a kindness, what a savior. O oh Lord, truly, hallelujah, what a savior. In your name we pray, amen.